Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome back to the show. My name is Noel. Our ride or die, Matt Frederick, is most likely uh, playing Best Fiends while he's on vacation. They called me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deck. And most importantly, you are you. You are here. And that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. This is a very interesting episode. It's one that has um, fascinated good pal Matt for a number of years. Uh, this episode is something that he cares deeply about. So we're going to, we're going to do our best to, <laughs> we're going to do our best to make him proud. Speaking of Matt, you blasted right by this whole best fiends business. We got mm. a bombshell yesterday that Matt Frederick has reached level 764 in the mobile uh, game, best fiends. And <laughs> I don't know whether to be proud of him or concerned for him. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, uh, he's nothing if not a passionate dude. Uh, but I was, I was likewise uh, surprised. Now, you know, Noel, 
if there's one thing that longtime listeners have learned from stuff they don't want you to know, it's this. You can blast by a lot of headlines. You can get a lot of buried leads. The mainstream news is a fickle, ephemeral thing. Some stories that seem pretty innocuous can receive international attention. Like, remember when the world was obsessed over figuring out what color a dress was on Facebook? What was the determination ultimately? Beige? Was it red? What were the choices? And how do you even interpret this, Ben, with your color deficiency? Did you feel right, left out right. of that story? No, I, I wouldn't have participated <laughs> even exactly, if I could have told, exactly. known what color. Uh, I think it was it was blue or it was gold or it was black. There was, there was a whole thing. But there are other stories, though, uh, tremendously important stories that seem to fade from the spotlight. And they're only followed up on by people in specialized internet forums or in specialized trade publications, for example, this this is weird, you know? Uh, Today's story comes to us from Josh P. Josh P., you emailed us to ask about the anthrax attacks of 2001. Now, right as we say that, a lot of us in the audience are going, Huh, anthrax, I, I, I kind of remember that, right? I, I, I know it's a thing, uh, but, wh- but what, do you, what do you mean? Well, to answer that question, we have to first tell you what anthrax is. So here are the facts. Yeah, so just to, to get it out of the way, no, not the thrash metal band from the 90s with that bald dude with the amazing goatee that you may have seen on episodes of Beavis and Butthead. Uh, the CDC describes anthrax as uh, a serious infectious disease that's caused by uh, something referred to as gram-positive rod-shaped bacteria um, referred to as Bacillus anthracus. Um, and it is something that can absolutely sicken people uh, when it's inhaled um, or when they are uh, they come into contact with infected animals or, um, you know, food foodstuffs. Another way of looking at it is that it's a, a spore forming bacillus that is absolutely deadly to humans. And there are three main forms of transmission uh, cutaneous, which is when you um, contract it through the skin. Uh, gastrointestinal, which of course is when you would ingest it uh, when you know eating a contaminated food product, and then there is pulmonary, which uh, is is mainly what we're going to be talking about today, which is when it is inhaled. Yeah, yeah, that's that's correct. So, so a lot of countries have stockpiled anthrax for a long time. When you hear people talking about bioweapon research, they're usually referring to things like anthrax because picture anthrax like, um, picture it like an agricultural product with the right know-how, you can grow it, you can groom it, and you can um, change it into various uh, various mediums of consumption, right? Like you said, with uh, oral or pulmonary or cutaneous inhalation or ingestion. So behind the scenes, while everybody is worrying about what color addresses or what the um, Kardashians are doing or, you know, what the newest season of your favorite television show is, governments and private partnerships around the world are constantly experimenting with diseases. They're refining them. You're usually going to hear about these in terms of 
national defense, right? Like, uh, like I'm, I'm, I'm sure, you know, if you went to the CDC, they would say, we're not making bioweapons, we're researching vaccines, right? We're trying to save people not harm them. That's right. And, and you might hear a term like weaponized grade, you know, like weapons grade plutonium or weaponized anthrax. And that just means it's refined to the point of being um, e- more easily dispersed, you know, through, say, air ducts, you know, in a building, for example. Or, you know, it's uh, when I say refined, I literally mean made into a fine substance that can be released and uh, become very, very dangerous because it is transmitted through, you know, air flow uh, in in the case of like a building or even outdoors. Yeah, yeah. And when we when we talk about these experts who are working on depending on on what what you believe, uh, working on either weaponizing diseases or on creating cures for these diseases, they also work on plans on scenarios, right? They, They work on what's called emergency preparedness plans. Yeah, and the CDC on their website does have an emergency preparedness plan in place for an anthrax attack, but... In my opinion, and I'm no expert, it seems pretty broad and kind of vague, almost more of a stop, drop, and roll situation than actually some sort of larger government uh, response plan that's that's in place. Uh, and it's interesting, in more recent times, focus truly seems to have shifted away from, you know, uh, bioterrorism protection and more towards pandemic preparedness. Um, though, based on our current situation, that does not not seem to have worked out quite so well. Um, so, you know, the, the jury is still out on that. But uh, bioterrorism was much more of a top of mind thing uh, during these attacks that we're going to talk about today. Right. Yes. Fellow conspiracy realists, you may remember this story from several years ago, almost 20 years ago now. Beginning on September 18th, 2001, just a week after literally just a week after the infamous terrorist attacks on September 11th, 2001, someone started mailing letters laced with anthrax. They sent these to several places, ABC, NBC, CBS, the New York Post, uh, American Media. That's, that's That's such a benign name. American Media is probably best known as the publisher of the National Enquirer, a quite popular tabloid here in the U.S., and they also sent uh, someone sent these sent anthrax laced letters to members of Congress. That's correct. Two Democratic senators, Tom Daschle and Patrick Leahy, uh, on October 2nd, 2001, um, uh, the gentleman at the American Media Building in Florida, which is, again, the parent company of the uh, uh, National Enquirer and also The Sun, um, a photo editor by the name of Robert Stevens, opened um, a, a an innocuously labeled envelope and was uh, exposed to anthrax. Um, there were various methods in these letters of, of dispersal, but like some of them were more successful than others. And I believe this is one where he pulled something out of the envelope and it actually kind of ejected powder into his face. And he really took a deep whiff of this, uh, this substance. Yep, absolutely. That's correct. Two days later, October 4th, 2001, Robert Stevens is diagnosed with what's called inhalational anthrax, meaning he ingested it just the way you described, Noel. 
Robert Stevens dies the next day, October 5th, 2001. And three days later, authorities in, start running tests on his office, on his workspace, and they find that his computer keyboard also tests positive for anthrax. This was only the first confirmed death. Overall, so far as we know, today in 2020, the anthrax attacks of 2001 left 17 people infected and five people died. Five people died from exposure to anthrax. This became a international story. And the problem with some of these international stories is that for one reason or another, copycats come into play. That's right. Um, there was another uh, copycat crime that occurred when someone else mailed fake anthrax in the form of just a harmless white powder, possibly baby powder or something like that, to the New York Times newsroom. And it was opened by a reporter named Judith Miller. Um, and, and it really just goes to show, because of what you said, Ben, that this truly uh, just was a massive story because it was in the wake of 9-11, uh, where people were just so on edge already and just really believing that terrorism was coming at us from all directions and the close proximity to that attack uh, on, on the World Trade Center buildings really got people freaked out and the FBI uh, acted accordingly, launching what they refer to as one of the largest and most complex investigations in the history of law enforcement and involved multiple agencies and thousands of, of hours of investigative uh, time. So what did they find? Well, we have to remember, as you said, that this occurred right after 9-11. It is impossible to convey just how um, alert, how tense, how crisis-ready government agencies were. You have to remember, folks, that war was in the air way before the anthrax. It was already floating around. It's And war is its own sort of infectious weapon, right? Its own sort of disease. The FBI scrambled and assembled what I think is a terribly named task force, the Amerithrax <laughs> task force. We didn't write that. They wrote that. Uh, it just does not really roll right off the tongue, does it? Uh, but, you know, name aside, it was serious business, roughly 25 to 30 full-time investigators from the FBI and the U.S. Postal Inspection Service and uh, multiple other law enforcement agencies, as well as federal prosecutors from the District of Columbia and the Justice Department counterterrorism section. Um, and as we said before, thousands of investigator work hours were involved that led to 10,000 witness interviews on six different continents, uh, execution of 80 search warrants, and the recovery of more than 6,000 items of potential evidence during this investigation. And you heard that right, six different continents. So that means that the Amerithrax task force literally asked people – everywhere except for Antarctica. Somehow, the folks in Antarctica slipped under the radar. This, this case also ended up uh, issuing more than 5,750 subpoenas for grand juries. They collected 5,730 environmental samples from 60 different places. They were on the search. This, this investigation in addition to being very expensive, was very thorough. 
Here's what, here's what they found. Here's how it shakes out. So FBI agents trace the first wave of letters to a single postmark. It's a, these letters came from Trenton, New Jersey, and that's the first five letters. They had a theme of sorts. You know, the letters weren't blank. When people opened the envelope, there was something written in there. And we've got, we've got the text of these. Um, let's, let's maybe start with the letters sent to New York Post and NBC. Absolutely. And, and by the way, if you want, you can look up images of these. They've been cataloged and photographed and you can see them. They're all handwritten in kind of a weird childish script. It's very serial killer-esque, honestly, the way the way they appear. Uh, and and the, the notes uh, <laughs> really lean into that even further. Um, so the one sent to the New York Post and the NBC News had this note. 9-11-01. Uh, this is next. Take penicillin now. <laughs> cool. Pro tip. Uh, death to America. Death to Israel, Allah is great. Okay, it seems to have escalated there to a little different place, but I uh, appreciate the, <laughs> right. the advice about taking penicillin. I, I think that's actually really helpful, you know. They also misspelled penicillin, by the way. It's true, but also, by the way, um, you know, people think of anthrax and they think like, I don't know, your mind immediately goes to some sort of face-melting, you know, bioterror product. And it really just sickens you. It can make you nauseous, and it's a respiratory thing that can obviously kill you in the same way that COVID-19 can. I mean, it can escalate much more quickly, but it is treatable with regular antibiotics. You know, it's not mm. a, a death sentence always is caught in enough time. Um, so it's not some kind of magical thing. It, it literally is just a disease that can be treated with uh, antibiotics. And we should note instantly, uh, you know, the FBI investigators had to had to say, well, is this a person writing um, English as a second language? You know, are they ESL? Is that why penicillin is misspelled? And of course, you know, there was a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment at the time. The letters sent to Senators Daschle and Leahy said, said very similar things. They said, you cannot stop us. We have this anthrax. You die now. Are you afraid? Death to America. Death to Israel. Allah is great. So clearly they're coming from the same source just based on the language there. Uh, you know, it is very difficult to describe the level of panic that occurs here. We have to remember uh, this is, again, a week after the largest attack in, on American soil in recent U.S. history. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously the first go-to is to investigate al-Qaeda. Uh, the White House pressured uh, then-FBI Director Robert Mueller to establish that the letters were a second wave of attacks relating to 9-11. And it's always tough when, you know, the brass kind of tells you what results <laughs> to get. You know what I mean? Because the question is, like, you know, sure, we can read these and say, okay, is it an ESL situation or is it someone trying to write in that voice as to create that effect? You know what I mean? To maybe right. cause that kind of panic. Um, so yeah, obviously that didn't pan out, uh, this, this notion that this was in fact a second wave, but that was what everyone thought. I mean, it was just the first place your mind would go, hence the hysteria that was just you know in the air in our country at that time. Yeah, yeah. And Mueller was definitely under pressure. Uh, but 
you know, from from his estimation, the facts just weren't there. There wasn't. There was one potential link. Uh, one of the nine eleven terrorists was uh, exposed to anthrax at some point, but that was that was pretty much all they could find. The initial actual suspects of the investigation ended up all being domestic. U.S. residents. Uh, there were probably about eh, hundred people or so who would have the know-how, uh, just the know-how alone, just the expertise, not even the motivation or the opportunity. The FBI first turned to a man named Stephen J. Hatfield. Dr. Hatfield is alive today. He is a pathologist. He's a bioweapons expert, and the FBI ruined his life. Yeah, for all intents and purposes. In mid-2002, the FBI uh, served him with a search warrant of his home, wearing hazmat suits, uh, investigating whether he was, in fact, this anthrax killer, as, as was dubbed in the media at the time. Um, he was, at that point, considered a major person of interest. His phone was tapped. He got fired from his job at Science Applications International Corporation. Um, yeah, like you said, Ben, I mean, this really... You know, in the terms of the court of public opinion and uh, just his other associations professionally, this absolutely railroaded him. Um, he did ultimately get exonerated. Uh, he was very was a very public exoneration. Um, there's a great clip of him where he says, you know, now I can look my fellow Americans in the eye and say unequivocally, I am not the anthrax killer, you know? And uh, he, he definitely got some money where his mouth was in the form of $5.8 from the Justice Department uh, and in two other undisclosed settlements from some of these other agencies that were involved. Uh, it was very clear that they were acting on spurious... Uh, evidence at best and and made uh, really jump the gun on nailing this guy in the way they did. Yeah, I like that you bring up the court of public opinion. One of those groups that reached an undisclosed settlement with him uh, was Condé Nast. Uh, it's a huge player in the media. They own Reddit, for instance. Uh, so, so Hatfield, luckily, if you're listening, Dr. Hatfield, we are glad that you were able to be exonerated for a crime that you clearly did not commit. Uh, but it's tough to recover from that sort of stuff. And he was ultimately found innocent of this crime. The primary conclusion of the FBI, the official story, is this. They concluded that a scientist named Bruce Ivins, acting alone, was the source of the entirety of the anthrax attacks. And he has, if you're a, if you're a profiler, he has all of the right red flags in all of the right places. He worked directly with anthrax. He was one of those people that we mentioned at the top of the show who develops vaccines. So he was working with anthrax um, officially to develop vaccines in case uh, some other government had a weaponized strain that they deployed in the U.S. or in a you know battlefield. And Ben, wasn't he even involved in the investigation to a yes. degree? Yeah, he volunteered. Right. Uh, he, he volunteered to test samples. He sent samples from his own lab. He was around 55 years old when the anthrax attacks occurred. Uh, he said, you know, I will help you determine the origin of the powder because everybody in the scientific community, everybody in the FBI, they knew only uh, a few people in the world 
would even understand the science involved here. So remember that part for later, folks. This guy volunteered to help the FBI determine the origin of the powder. And let's not forget how much pressure the FBI was under, especially since this public exoneration and having that egg on their face from wasting all those millions of dollars and thousands of hours, you know, focusing on the wrong perp. Um, Dr. Ivans was literally right under their noses. I mean, he was working, you know, in their labs, essentially. I mean, he was an agent of the government um, and he, uh, you know, was kind of a goofball. He, he was a he was he was sort of a kook, really. Like he was described as being a bit arrogant um, and and something of a flamboyant figure. And uh, you know that that was a term that was thrown around. I'm not sure if there, if that's meant to be a pejorative or just that he was kind of a, a little bit kooky. That's kind of the vibe that I got, but not necessarily a red flag in terms that he seemed like some kind of sociopath. He would send these like chipper emails with bad dad jokes, which I can get behind, um, as he talked through the dangers of of anthrax. But he was, uh, by some, seen as being a bit disturbed. Yes, that's correct. Behind those puns, behind those cheerful exclamation marks and tangents in his emails, which the FBI obtained, of course, he had a lot of trauma. His therapist said that he had a traumatic childhood and was described as disturbing. And he himself, as an adult, seemed to be disturbed. He was a married man, uh, but back in 1976, he was jilted by a fellow grad student who would go on to be a colleague in this field, a Dr. Nancy Hagwood. And since he was jilted, Again, back in 1976, he had apparently become obsessed with her old sorority, Kappa Kappa Gamma, and sororities in general. One Yikes. of his boss. Yeah, yeah. He would sit outside of sorority houses, just sit in his car, and he would, um, you know, when he met a colleague who was affiliated with a sorority, he would instantly start. I don't know, like pressuring them, cracking down. He he got weird with it. Yeah, but there, there's also part of me that like, is he just socially awkward and maybe a bit on the spectrum? Or is this stalkery kind of rapey behavior uh, in saying, what's your secret password? What's your secret handshake? Um, it, it seems kind of like a goofball way of flirting, like saying, ha ha, what's your secret handshake? You know what I mean? As opposed to something genuinely, uh, creepy. But, uh, it, he was, um, described as, as having an interest intellectually in secret things. Yeah. He, uh, he, this, this recollection comes from one of his former bosses, a uh, Dr. Priscilla Weirich. Uh, she had a. She was in a sorority in college, Chi Omega, and she said that he was doing exactly what you described, Noel. He was always saying, you know, what's your what's your secret password? What's your secret handshake? So she thought that he was just maybe, as you said, a guy who was a little bit off, brilliant but a little bit awkward, who was really interested in secret things. The person we mentioned earlier, Doctor Nancy Hakewood is the person who actually brought Dr. Bruce Ivins to the attention of the FBI. So what was their official conclusion? We'll tell you after a word from our sponsor. 
Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals. Your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. And we're back. So, so Noel, officially, there's no reason for us to look into this uh, for stuff they don't want you to know because the FBI has an official conclusion, right? Nothing I trust more than an official FBI conclusion, Ben, let me tell you. Uh, so, yeah, it's true. Today, the FBI's official position is that Dr. Bruce Ivins was a lone wolf, um, acted without any influence outside of his own troubled mind, uh, and that he executed these anthrax attacks alone. And there's some things that check out here. He had the know-how. He had the access. Uh, he had the opportunity to do these things. But he never confessed, and to boot, he's not in prison. Uh, Dr. Bruce Ivins 
took his own life. He was discovered on July 27th, 2008, unconscious in his home uh, and taken to the hospital. He had uh, overdosed, apparently, on um, Tylenol-3, I think is what it's called. It's a combination of Tylenol and codeine that you'd get for a toothache or a minor surgery. But taken in large doses, is actually the Tylenol that kills you. Yeah, yep. He died at Frederick Memorial Hospital on July 29th, 2008. The FBI had found their bad guy. They would never have to uh, investigate further. They they established to their you know to their satisfaction the timeline. They established that he did, as you said, have the expertise. Uh, they established that he did have the opportunity. Do what a note, by the way. There was no official autopsy. There's not one. There's not one on the record uh, because, again, there's this pressure. We got to close the case. You know, it's it's something that's very familiar to fans of shows like The Wire. The FBI uh, found their guy, but their guy didn't have a day in court. No, with Ivan's dead, the FBI would never have to prove their case to a jury. And we're going to get into, you know, what their case was uh, as, as we progress with this episode. But what if, Ben... What if the official story uh, kind of peters out in 08? What if another story begins? Um, Because the case against Bruce Ivins isn't nearly as ironclad as the news media and the press conferences and briefings from the FBI would have had um, viewers uh, and citizens of the United States believe. Mm -hmm. You see, one thing that was missing from the FBI's case, one of several things, was a real motive. There wasn't one established. And this means that in the almost a decade between when these attacks occurred and when this podcast publishes, theories have proliferated. Speculation thrives even now about what actually happened? The big question, the big what if here is what if after millions of dollars and thousands of hours, the FBI nailed the wrong man? Here's where it gets crazy. No, let's like what, what, motivation, right? I love that you pointed out the, the flamboyant thing, but the FBI didn't ever have like a clear, discernible reason yeah and another thing we we know from like murder shows is you know some murders don't have to have a motive Uh, it's not like a requirement but with such an analytical guy like this and such a pointed targeted attack a motive i would like to hear a little bit more about a motive you know what i mean like i mean these were very specific individuals uh politicians news outlets that these uh letters were sent to um seemingly for what you know we, we really just don't have it. did the guy just crack and if so why such a specific targeted and pointed attack again we're not owed a motive it's not a necessity to you know convict somebody of a crime the possible motivations, like the idea that he mailed anthrax to NBC as a way of punishing them for uh, journalist Gary Matsumoto's work uh, on his lab, that fell apart because Matsumoto worked at ABC, not NBC. Um, and he had written some not very flattering stories about some of uh, some of Ivan's research. Ben, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. He he did uh, he did an investigation into 
the actual lab that uh, Dr. Bruce Ivins was working at. But again, he worked for ABC, not NBC. So that that motivation doesn't add up because if Ivins did this, he would have at least been aware of which news organization this journalist was working for at the time. Additionally, Dr. Ivins passed a lie detector test, a polygraph. Polygraphs, we should mention here, um, I've got a brain stuff episode about this, I think. They're not scientifically sound, but it is rare for a guilty person to pass a lie detector test, usually, unless you know a few handy tricks. Here they are, really quick. Not saying that you should ever lie on a polygraph, but if you want to pass a polygraph test, again, because they are not scientifically sound, you can employ any number of tricks, including doing some things to mess with your own body temperature, such as meditation, etc. You can... Uh, this is, this is fairly explicit, but back in the day, people used to just really flex their Kegel muscle for an extended amount of time. Uh, that'll do it. Um, you could put thumbtacks in your palm or in your shoe, of course. Uh, there, there are a number of ways to invalidate it. Because it's all about sort of messing with that base level, that baseline, right? Um, and then, you know, because what's the polygraph if not just kind of a slightly, you know, more complex like stress test? So if you can establish a baseline using that thumbtack in your palm, that's, you know, sort of a, an elevated baseline, then everything else is going to kind of, you know, be affected by that. Absolutely. And, and we also know that during the investigation – even right after the conclusion of the investigation and right after it was re-examined, first in 2008, then in 2011, a lot of people, people in power, some like victims of these attacks did not believe the FBI's conclusion. They, they thought it didn't add up. Yeah, even Senator Patrick Leahy, who you'll remember was the target of one of the attacks, testified that he did not believe that Ivan's acted alone, though uh, Senator Daschle, who was the other political target, did, did not agree with that assessment. Uh, so in 2008, FBI Director Robert Mueller, you know, figured, OK, if there's doubt, you know, that's being publicly stated, let's get to the bottom of this. And he called for an independent review of the investigation by the National Academy of Sciences. And that review found that uh, prosecutors had largely overstated the case uh, in the certainty of their findings. Um, members of that committee said that uh, there were some newly available methods uh, for testing these these samples of, of anthrax uh, to prove the FBI's case much more definitively um, or lead to some other suspects. But... Um, they were not interested in exploring such uh, such tests. Um, they relied on some, I believe it was a sort of a fingerprint to trace it back to what they refer to as a flask uh, of anthrax that uh, Ivan's had control over. And it's, it has a coded um, kind of ID that I, I'm, I'm having a hard time finding right now, but it's like two letters, a dash, and, and three numbers. Um, and the technique involved tracing these particular mutations uh, that they could, you know, kind of match up with the with the actual uh, 
the flask that where it originated. And apparently they tested more than a thousand samples uh, throughout this investigation. And only eight of them had tested positive for four of these mutations uh, found in the germs that were sent to Congress and, and the news media. So uh, there, this caused an issue even in the early stages of the investigation. There was a group of scientists known as the Red Team that said the FBI should do more basic research into why those mutations might have arisen, uh, that it wasn't a foregone conclusion just because the mutations existed that they necessarily were uh, you know, traced back to that original flask, um, and that uh, this woman named Jennifer Smith, who is a senior manager at the FBI's lab, um, she expressed those concerns and didn't feel that the FBI had a kind of full understanding of how these mutations might have uh, arisen and how this would be seen by a judge and how it could potentially be thrown out entirely. Right, right. The the science is vital here. Uh, that specific, let's say, brand or type of anthrax flask RMR. 1029. Uh, the reason we know this uh, is because everything is should be obsessively documented in the in the field of biohazard research or bioweapons, right? If you are working um, in, in, in the kind of lab or situation that Dr. Ivans was working in at the time, your interactions with every single version of every single contagion has to be documented, right? So that we know, looking at the records, we know every time the guy was in his lab, we know that his time in the lab uh, on weekends and nights accelerated, right? He was spending a lot of time there before the attacks occurred. And we should know everything the guy touched. But even now, even in 2020, just, just like the experts you mentioned earlier, Noel, we find large groups of people, including some of the doctor's colleagues and some of his professional rivals, who are convinced that this man was innocent. And, you know, the basis for their belief is not that they are in a Bruce Edward Ivins fan club. In fact, one of the reasons that a lot of people say he's innocent is that they say the attacks were too sophisticated for this guy to have figured out himself. The argument is basically, yes, he had the know-how and the expertise to um, experiment with anthrax and maybe even to grow this particular strain, but he had no training in the delivery of bioweapons, which I think goes right to your earlier point about how botched this attack was. Yeah, that's true, and that that all, all, honestly to me in some ways makes it seem like it could have been him uh, because if it were executed by a more, you know, savvy group, then they maybe would have had a better delivery method because, you know, anthrax is toxic uh, up to the tiniest particles. And like we said at the top of the show, you know, if dispersed through uh, ducts of, a, of an office building could potentially infect thousands of people. Um, and as we know, the, the fatality count and even just the people that were sickened by these was relatively 
quite low, you know? Yeah. So um, yeah. definitely didn't seem like it went as planned. But at the same time, the spores of anthrax were like Walter White, Breaking Bad level, like strong, high quality. Uh, you could, you know, call them uh, something along the lines of weapons grade, uh, which is, you know, sort of a vague term that doesn't necessarily mean one thing. But it's the type, basically, the you know, the finest uh, anthrax grade that can be produced for bioweapons programs in either the U.S. or somewhere like Russia. I want to I want to interject here. Yeah, the reason I I, I think Breaking Bad is a great comparison. Uh, this is like the blue meth level of weaponized anthrax. There's a there's a scary thing here that often gets ignored in this story, which is this: the spores of anthrax. Not to get too far in the weeds, they were only 1.5 to three micrometers wide. Individual spores, and it is fine grade. You're correct. It is Walter White level. This type of anthrax is smaller than the officially acknowledged or even open secret level bioweapons created by the U.S. or by Russia. That should disturb people because that means that someone somewhere is making something that neither world power there acknowledges. Which isn't that much of a stretch. We know that governments hold back technology all the time, you know, and keep it for military use, uh, and, and they wouldn't necessarily want to broadcast that they have that. That's not something that they just, like, announce, hey, we made a scarier version of anthrax, you guys. Like, check it out. Uh, but no, <laughs> yeah. it's 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 true. And, and, and again, when we say fine grade, we literally are talking about the particulate size because that's what allows it to be just dispersed like the wind can pick it up like a you know a dandelion down and just carry it across the land infecting you know everything in its path potentially i mean obviously you have to breathe it in but these are you know that they could be you know just millions of tiny 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 particles in a envelope of full of powder a powdered version of this stuff right and and you're opening it indoors uh, yeah. and there are a lot of people around so yeah uh you know at the risk of sounding cold, it is surprising that only 17 people were infected. Uh, there's another problem with this official uh, conclusion, and that's this. Uh, Dr. Ivan's colleagues and people familiar with the lab can confirm that the lab equipment cited in the FBI conclusion, the lab equipment that he would have to have used to create this stuff and to disperse it, that lab equipment was not working. He did not have the capability to make the spores if he were using the equipment in that lab full stop. It was there, yes, he had the know-how, but that equipment was broken down at the time. You know what I mean? You can see how this gets messy so quickly. Yeah, you absolutely can. And, and just again, to, to clarify, like the we're talking about the flask. That would be sort of like the mother, right? Like that's sort of the origin material for what he would have used to then, I guess, propagate them or grow them into, you know, a more usable version of, of, of anthrax and then, you know, make it into the powder. Um, so, yeah, that would require a lot of know-how and a lot of uh, very sophisticated equipment. And if it wasn't working in his lab, what did he like have a, a secret lab like at his house? I mean, maybe, I, I, you know, who, who are we to say? But it definitely was highly unlikely that he made it with this broken down equipment at his lab. And numerous government officials and scientists 
also believe that this official story doesn't add up. And and there are numerous theories that have uh, kind of circulated in the years since this, uh, this conclusion about uh, Dr. Ivans. And we're going to get into all of those after a quick word from our sponsor. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. And we're back. Yes, the conspiracies, the theories, the speculation thrives and proliferates. And to be clear, the people who are proposing these alternative conclusions or these problems with the official investigation, they're not what you would call tinfoil hat people. They include people who were working with the FBI in the investigation. They include uh, scientists, they include experts in anthrax, uh, and and they have a lot of valid concerns here. Dr. Ivans, as I believe we said at the top, was only one of at least 100 people 
who could have worked with this specific brand of anthrax, of course, RMR 1029. Um, not the sexiest name, but it's a technical term. The Far thing superior is, to RMR 1028. If, oh, if, my if, God. I mean, oh. really, it was, a, it was a good year. Don't even talk to me about 1028. Are you kidding? 1029. Come on. That's, that, that's the connoisseur's choice, apparently. But he was like, he was not the only person who would have touched this. Also, the FBI did not have a peer review of their conclusions of the scientific end of it during their investigation. The science, in short, to be very clear, the science was not there. Yeah, taking it a step further, even a 2011 review of the investigation was not able to rule out the possibility that someone or some group other than Ivan's committed the crime. Uh, the Government Accountability Office, uh, or GAO, as I like to call it, because I'm an acronym junkie, uh, found this, uh, quote, the FBI lacked a comprehensive approach or framework that could have ensured standardization of the testing process. We jumped into that a little early uh, when we were talking about testing for that mutation or those mutations. And how people even within the FBI's lab kind of warned them against, you know, jumping to conclusions about what could have caused those mutations. They could have been something outside of what they were using it as a kind of a foregone conclusion and tracing it back. It's sort of like, I don't know, maybe this is a stretch and science people, please debunk the crap out of me because I'm just sort of spitballing here. But it reminds me of the way certain ballistics Technology have kind of been debunked where you can, you know, say the striations or whatever, like on a particular bullet could have only been generated by this one gun. And there's a version of that technology that was, in fact, debunked and it caused some people to be exonerated because they were convicted using uh, that kind of spurious um, conclusion derived from, you know, something that could have been caused by other uh, factors. So they go on to say, uh, the Government Accountability Office, as a result, each of the contractors developed their tests differently. And one contractor did not conduct verification testing, which is a key step in determining whether a test will meet a user's requirements, such as for sensitivity or accuracy. Broken test sounds familiar, unfortunately, and these are days of pandemic. So if there are problems with the FBI's official investigation, does that mean there are problems with the FBI's official conclusion? The answer there, logically, is yes. So now we have to ask what actually happened, and that means that we have to look at the conspiracies. There, there's one, you know, that's that's pretty interesting because a lot of people don't know this, but uh, before Vice President. Mike Pence was uh, in office in the U.S. He was also, he had a different career as a prominent radio host, and then he moved into politics. He had some stuff to say about this investigation, right? Yeah, he did. He kind of just made some sort of shot-in-the-dark kind of claims, um, released some statements, uh, uh, saying some pretty interesting things about this substance. Um, he essentially said, uh, quote in a statement, um, the material found in my office and in others in Capitol Hill was finely milled weapons-grade anthrax that had been, this is the key part, genetically modified to increase its virulence. Huh. What does that mean, Ben? Genetically modified. I mean, it's a, it's the same, it's the same thing, right? He's he's arguing that this was weaponized, and again, we have to remember that this this stuff was officially better than anything the U.S. or Russia or China 
could make. Uh, he was, um, I think at that point he was in the, he was a representative, right? He was a congressional representative before he became governor of Indiana, before he became vice president. That's right. And, and, you know, I mean, it's, he's, the notion that it was quote unquote weapons grade obviously is is true to a degree, though the term is is a little bit dubious in terms of like how it's used. The idea of weapons grade, there isn't really a standard as to what constitutes weapons grade anthrax. Uh, the L.A. Times reported in an article uh, by David Willman uh, from July 16th of 2016, um, and they spoke to um, a uh, researcher at Johns Hopkins University named Stephen L. Salzberg, who was actually part of the first team to check out the material for the U.S. government. And he said, that's just wrong. That's simply wrong. And we knew at the time that it was wrong. Uh, he's speaking, of course, of, of um, Pence's claims. Um, and then Pence even kind of doubled down further and said something to the effect of, oh, it was coated with a chemical of some kind. Like he definitely added some more. Uh, fuel to this fire in saying um, in a 2002 letter to Ashcroft, the attorney general, um, that the spores had been, quote, coated with a chemical. Um, and that had also been disproven by scientists at the Sandia National Laboratory in New Mexico. Yeah, but, a few months before he told Ashcroft that. That's right. And I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea of it being genetically modified. Um, and, and it's interesting, too, because uh, Colin Powell, who is the Secretary of State, he used this uh, as, you know, we know was a thing, you know, in terms of weapons of mass destruction. He used this as another call to kind of go to war with Iraq um, to support military action against Iraq that, you know, tying this, these anthrax attacks uh, and as, as we did 9-11, which we now know really wasn't the case at all. Uh, and we used that as an excuse to go to war with Iraq, and that sort of got us embroiled in the Middle East in a, a way that we're still kind of dealing with today. Still friends with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, though. You want to kill some journalists? You want to, uh, you want to support some terrorists? That's fine. We'll see how oil prices affect that geopolitical relationship. But that's a story for another day. You're right. Uh, you know, people immediately tied this to terrorism, death to America, death to Israel, Allah is great, so on. Uh, this, we also have to remember that at this time, millions of innocent Americans are being vilified in the media for their religious beliefs, right? It's as dumb and disgusting as any other sort of prejudice. Um, so when we're when we're talking about the belief of terrorism or something, or, you know, the, the idea that religiously motivated terrorists might have perpetrated the anthrax attacks. We're specifically talking about Al-Qaeda. We're not talking about some general amorphous thing. We're talking about a real, concrete, discrete, uh, existing organization that did have a, a track record, a rap sheet of committing terrorist acts. Absolutely. And, and let's also remember that this was used as kind of, you know, a media um, device. Powell held a press conference where he had a vial of white powder in his hand, uh, a small amount. And he said that a teaspoon size uh, quantity of anthrax um, in one of the letters had, you know, driven Washington into a state of chaos, uh, killed and killed two postal workers. 
workers. Um, and he suggested uh, very pointedly that Iraq had stockpiled enough anthrax to, quote, fill tens upon tens upon tens of thousands of teaspoons. <laughs> right. So, I mean, he's definitely trying to stir up some. It's, it's definitely it's a it's a fear mongering move, is what it is. And maybe sure. it's well intentioned, but it, it seems to me like a, a you know a pretty callous maneuver. I'm just laughing because I uh, I think that's a fantastic example of the of just how far we in the United States will go to avoid using the metric system. That's right? so funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though. He's like, he's, he's like, put it in a number people can understand. Tens <laughs> upon tens upon tens upon tens. Mm-hmm. If, each, if each spore of anthrax was the size of an Oreo and you stacked them on top of each other, they could reach, you know, whatever. Uh, as long as we don't use the metric system. That's one of the, that's one of the big rules. But but there's another conspiracy here. The idea that uh, that that the idea that the threat came closer to home, the idea that this was a false front, or that some faction of the U.S. government actually planned this attack. You can imagine that for the people who believe. 9-11 itself was a false flag. The anthrax attacks of 2001 were just another planned event or another sequence in a larger plan, another inside job. You know, this school of thought frames those attacks as a plan B, a backup measure, just in case 9-11 was not, uh, not enough of a push to make the public and the government move forward with certain actions, then this this sort of the equivalent of a double tap would ensure that the public moved in the direction that these powers, uh, whoever they are, uh, wanted. You know, it's it, it's strange because <sighs> there's something comforting. This, this is weird, but walk with me here. There's something comforting about the idea that there is a grand design. You know what I mean? The idea that there that the the same people who cannot get their stuff together on any given Tuesday are somehow also capable of this Rube Goldberg-esque control of the past, the future, and the present. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I feel like the idea that there's super villainy at work and a grand conspiracy is much more comforting than the other side of the coin, which is that... What, that it's just chaos? <laughs> right, right. That, that maybe there's another conspiracy theory is that the FBI is covering up for governmental incompetence. Like, what, what about that political pressure? Like, what, what if they just, you know, what if they had people breathing down their necks saying, close this case now? Find me a person. Who's the creepiest guy that we know has touched anthrax? This is the lowest hanging fruit possibility of them all. I mean, it makes the most sense. You know, you want to save face. You want to get the job done, even if it means putting away the wrong guy. You know, maybe they even had a hand in his suicide. You know, crazier things have been reported, you know, in terms of the government's involvement in assassinating folks and, you know, trying to cover that up, you know, so I, I just, I have no problem believing this. And, and I find the false flag narrative to be 
just such a go-to kind of Looney Tunes one. Like people are saying that about the COVID situation right now. That like it's a fault. Like you know, some people that don't believe that it's real. I, I equate it to like Holocaust denial or something. It's like, dude, there's bodies piling up. They're making like you know ice skating rinks in New York into makeshift morgues. Like it's real. You know, like move on. Yeah, I would say you know to that point, the U.S. government is such a Byzantine, complicated, maze-like structure with so many people involved and so many groups involved that it is completely possible uh, for factions of the U.S. government to do things that the, you know, the other groups in the government don't know about or would object to. Like the CIA is the go-to example there. They did, they're doing all sorts of dirty stuff. And uh, there are people who are supposed to have oversight of that organization, and they have no idea what's going on. You know, they're in the dark. Uh, and the FBI has done some some very filthy things, too, in the past. So I, I, I can see where this is coming from. At this point, there is no conclusive proof uh, that anyone affiliated with the government in a law enforcement capacity conspired to mail anthrax to people. But the problem remains. Th- this is the biggest problem here. The science, the science upon which the FBI's conclusion depends is not itself sound, regardless of whether you think the FBI found their culprit or whether you, you know what, if you think that some government agents actually conducted this attack, or if you think that political pressure rushed the investigation, there is one thing for sure, and that is numerous experts, not just Dr. Ivan's colleagues, agree the FBI has never conclusively proven Dr. Ivan's was 100% the man behind the mail. And all that lab work, that, that is what the case hinges on. And it's not, it's not solid. There's a really fantastic series on ProPublica, uh, one of which is Was FBI's Science Good Enough to ID Anthrax Killer? Um, and, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, but uh, just to hit home again, um, to quote the article, investigators had invented a new form of genetic fingerprinting for the case, testing anthrax collected from U.S. and foreign labs for mutations detected in the attack powder. Out of more than a thousand samples, only eight tested positive for four mutations found in the deadly germs sent to Congress and the news media. Um, even so, uh, the outside scientists, quote, known as the Red Team, uh, sorry, just saying this is a quote, uh, urged the FBI to do more basic research into how and when the mutations arose to make sure the tests were sound and the results unchallengeable. And they didn't do that. So. You know, uh, this review um, showed the FBI definitely overstated its case and possibly would not have gotten a conviction. Uh, In fact, seems to me quite likely would not have gotten a conviction um, uh, against Ivan's because they based their uh, conclusions on some pretty shaky science. And what does Dr. Ivan's think? We'll never know because, again, he died uh, of an overdose of Tylenol codeine, or as you said, no, Tylenol 3, uh, that was ruled a probable suicide. So he never got his day in court. Uh, and technically, 
in this country, uh, day, days in court are, you know, they're a thing. They're a tradition that we like to say we practice. <laughs> but you, you know what I mean. Oh, I know. Uh, it's, it, a, it's a formality <laughs> at times. It, it, it seems really just kind of like a smokescreen of, hey, look, justice is being carried out, you know, but it quite often is not, you know, uh, there, there is that court of public opinion. Um, and, and this is really all Dr. Ivan's truly got tried in. Um, and he was pilloried and he, um, you know, uh, lost his life because of it. And, you know, he may have been a weirdo and he may have had a hand in this, but I don't buy that he was acting alone if he had anything to do with it at all. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's the issue. Let's, you know, there's, one person that we should introduce here at the toward the end of this episode, and that is Claire Frazier Liggett. Uh, she was a pivotal member of the Amerithrax. God, I can't believe that's the real name. The Amerithrax <laughs> investigation. Uh, she was a genetic consultant working with the FBI. One of those people who helped nail down the specific uh, type of anthrax. Let's let's give the last word to her again. This is an expert. This is one of the um, protagonists, right? This is a person who's attempting to solve this case. And she says, quote, this was not an airtight case by any means. You know, I think that for an awful lot of people, there is a desire to really want to say that, yes, Ivans was the perpetrator. This case can reasonably be closed and we can put this tragic chapter in U.S. history behind us. But I think part of what's driving that is the fact that if he wasn't the perpetrator, then it means that person is still out there. So if not Bruce Ivins, then who? That's the question we leave you with today. Um, what, what do you think? Please let us know. You can write to us in the usual usual places, the social medias, or we're some form of conspiracy stuff or conspiracy stuff show. You can also find us as individuals on social media. I am on Instagram at Brown. And you can find me on Twitter at Ben Bullen HSW. You can also find me on Instagram in a burst of creativity, calling myself at Ben Bullen. Do you hate social media? Totally get it. Uh, why not leave us a message? Give us a call. You can reach us at one eight three three S T D W Y T K. Feels weird when we're not saying it together. I miss, you know, I miss when Matt says this. I hope he likes this episode. I do too. I really hope he likes this episode, and it's a bummer that he isn't here for it. But I hope we did him proud. And speaking of Matt, if you call that number that we just mentioned, even now while Matt's on vacation, uh, you may well he may give you a call back. No promises, but he's been known to do it. He's a lovely man and would love to talk to you. Consider, uh, you know, I wouldn't even say that's a promise. I would say consider it a warning. Be careful with doors you open. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so do let us know. And while you're at it, let us know uh, if there are any other stories of scientists who have died under mysterious circumstances. If there's another angle of the anthrax attacks that you feel like your fellow listeners should know about, uh, you can tell us, as Noel said, uh, on social media. You can also find us on your your local telephone. Uh, and if you say, hey, I hate phones, hey, I hate social media, but I have something you need to know, we are all ears, we are all eyes. You can reach us 24-7 in any day of the year, any time of the day, at our good old-fashioned email address, where we are. Conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com.
Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax. Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com.